I'd like to welcome you to our Beyond the Scalpel podcast. These are a series of discussions that I've had with different leaders in our aesthetic community. I've always thought that we've had some of the most interesting people in the aesthetic community, whether they're surgeons and physicians, leaders in the business community, or even some of our clients and patients. Uh, these are really interesting people who've got very interesting stories. These talks are meant to be casual discussions that discuss people's lives, what got them to where they are, and what they see as being important in the aesthetic community now and where we're going towards in the future. My first guest is Dr. Rick Warren. Dr. Warren is a plastic surgeon from Vancouver who specializes in facelifting. He's really, to me, one of the foremost facelift surgeons in North America, let alone in Canada. I was really uh, thrilled to be able to have a conversation with Rick. We talked casually about his career, about what got him to this point in his career and what he sees in the plastic surgery and aesthetic community going forward. We also talked a little bit about the nature of aesthetics and how we reconcile the medical aspect with the retail aspect of the discipline. I think it's a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, there you are. How you doing? Good, how are you? Well, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, we have uh, a complete change in weather here in Vancouver this morning. This morning, I, I came into my office yesterday, this very time to check for lighting. It was a blue sky, sunny day. Now it looks dark and gray and rainy, so it's a different day here. Yeah, is that is that par for the course in Vancouver? That is definitely par for the course, yeah. As everybody says, at least you don't shovel it. Yeah, well, that happened yesterday for us here. We woke up to snow, which was pretty, um, really? yeah, but which is pretty crazy. It feels way too early for me to, to be shoveling snow. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the, the sound's good and the, picture's okay is it yeah no we see it great so um yeah this is this is terrific so uh you're gonna see me everything's being recorded we, we're we're recording yeah. now so we can just kind of start talking and and feel feel casual about it but yeah you'll you'll see me sure. um and then you're directly recorded onto the to the video so gotcha. yeah so thanks for thanks for joining me uh i started doing this a while ago and and partly it's really just something I like doing. I mean, I, I just really like talking to other people that are in the industry. I think yeah, we're, yeah. we're blessed to be in an industry where um, we have so many fascinating people uh, who excel at what they do and uh, have really great stories. Uh, and so I, I this is really kind of selfish from my perspective. I get a chance to talk to a ton of people in a really interesting way. So I, I really thank you for for joining us. Um, I, oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's an honor to be part of something like this. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, it's funny. I was thinking about you a while ago and um, <laughs> I, I really have wanted to chat with you for a long time. And I'll tell you a story, actually. So years ago, when I was looking at jobs, um, this, I, I interviewed for a position in British Columbia. And part of that, I had dinner with an aesthetic surgeon. This is this was about 15 years ago. And uh, the per somehow the, the conversation came to you and this person kind of talked about how you were the aesthetic surgeon they admired the most. And this was this was 15 years ago. I was starting out. I, I knew you a little bit, but uh, it, it kind of always stuck in my head. And I, I've gotten to know you very well over the years. And it's certainly kind of been reinforced. So um, and then, you know, and then it's funny, I, I was talking to one of my senior colleagues, Doug Ross, who, you know, Doug Ross very well. 
Yeah. He's from British Columbia. You know, he's a, he's a native out here. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Doug was uh, the Doug was really one of the people that inspired me to come into plastics, and Doug was my my senior partner here at Western. And uh, interesting story: Doug told me that he was actually the clinical clerk on your very first operative case at Vancouver General Hospital, and he said it was a he remembered he said it was a, a replanted digit that you put on and. He said you took a picture of the, the case and everybody in the room, and he was the lowly clinical clerk in that room at the at, for your very first case. <laughs> well, uh, that's a, a true story, and in fact, I, I had a chance to uh, to show the picture uh, when I was visiting professor at the University of Western Ontario a, uh, about a decade ago, and uh, I didn't tell Doug I had the photo, but there it was, and uh, he was probably. 24 years old, something like that. And uh, he was the last guy on the totem pole, no question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's great. So, um, so it, you know, I, I could go on and on about kind of stories like this, but I, I, I was telling this earlier. I, I looked at your CV. Um, I was going through your CV. And, and the other part of it that, that made me smile was seeing that you had done your undergrad in mathematics. And, yeah. uh, and I was telling you this, the reason it made me smile is that uh, I did my undergrad in mathematics, but and I thought I was good at math. That was the reason why I went into math as my undergrad. And and about one and a half years to two years in, I realized I was not good enough at mathematics. <laughs> and I, I got out of there. So I never met any other uh, surgeon who had done an undergrad in mathematics. So when I saw I saw that you had done your, you'd completed your undergrad in mathematics. It took me back to, you know, that period of time when I came to the realization that I was not a mathematician. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear that story because I went through that same process where I thought I was pretty good at math. I went to university. I think, well, I'll, I'll do the thing I'm best at. Then I started looking around at all these geniuses around me and I thought, well, gosh, these are the guys that are really going to make a difference. And uh, anyway, that at, at that point, I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a math teacher? And I didn't really want to be a math teacher. So I started looking around for other other professions. And that's how I ended up in medicine, actually. I ended up sort of going in the back door like that. Yeah. Well, well you have a storied career. And, and you started out, I mean, you're an aesthetic surgeon now, and you're well known yeah. for facelifts, um, obviously. Uh, but you started out like many of us do as a reconstructive surgeon, and I'm I, you know I'm not sure back then were there a lot of aesthetic fellowships that one could go into, or was the pathway uh, generally somebody who started in practice and kind of learned? Because now, even from a college perspective, if a person is going to come into practice and really wants to get into aesthetics, the expectation is that they're going to do uh, a quite a bit of training before they do it. It's it's different than it was perhaps three or four decades, don't you think? Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, in, in my era, when I finished, my uh, mentors were not aesthetic surgeons. They were people who did reconstructive surgery. They did burns and trauma and hands and other sorts of things like that. And maybe they did a little aesthetic surgery on the side, but that's what I saw. And uh, I, I, I liked aesthetic surgery. I have always had a bit of an artistic side to me. Maybe that's part of the mathematic thing, but uh, I, I kind of thought it was kind of neat. But uh, I was I went off to do a fellowship actually in uh, reconstructive surgery. That's when muscle flaps were just being invented. That was the new thing on the horizon. And and uh, I went to a center where muscle flaps are being described, Norfolk, Virginia. So that's 
my felt that was my fellowship. But while I was there, I noticed that these American surgeons in Norfolk had this private clinic over across the river, and they used to go there. And I started hanging around over there, and I thought, well, this is really cool. It, it, it's detailed-oriented surgery. It's uh, it's kind of the, it appealed to the OCD in my personality, and so I just kind of fell into it. But you're dead right. In those days, I don't think there were, would have been a handful, maybe less than five aesthetic fellowships available, and I certainly wasn't aiming at one. I, that that was not on my radar, nor was it on, on most people's radar. Um, the fact is, in Canada, aesthetic surgery was really in its infancy, and it was uh, mostly, as I've described, people, uh, plastic surgeons, who tended to do it as a sideline, but not as a primary thing. That's obviously changed, but that's the way it was in the beginning. So I, I love hearing these stories. When, so this would have been the early 80s, right? Um, so how did how did your aesthetic practice, how did your interest in aesthetics kind of grow at that time? And, and what were the opportunities like at that point? Well, looking back on it, actually, you know, it's everything in retrospect is pretty clear, but the opportunities were huge. Uh, you know, there was, there was no competition. Uh, you know, if you really went, could go back in a time machine and start over again and wanted to be an aesthetic surgeon, that it was every city in Canada was really an open playing field. But uh, like, uh, as I mentioned, I really wasn't in the game to be an aesthetic surgeon in the beginning. I came back to Vancouver. I was offered a job at the university and I was going to do reconstructive surgery. Uh, and I just, as I said, I just started doing some aesthetic surgery and liked it. And uh, actually, w one thing that happened there, Jang, that it's kind of interesting looking at the era. Um, I, I got into liposuction because I kind of went on a on a tour after my fellowship. I decided, well, I better go and see how the aesthetic surgeons do it. So I visited uh, Bruce Canal in California, spent about a month with him and another surgeon in Las Vegas and uh, uh, particular surgeons. And one of them that I visited uh, was uh, Fred Grazer in Newport Beach, California. And he had just come back from France where they had gone to learn liposuction. And so I learned liposuction and I bought a machine. So bottom line was I, in my first year of practice, I, I did a, a liposuction case and it was big news in Vancouver. It, it was almost on TV. I was on the radio the next month. And uh, all of a sudden I was getting all these liposuction patients were coming in. I, I think I did the first lipo in Canada actually. And if not, it was about a week after Lindsay did it in Toronto, but very early. So I had this aesthetic practice in liposuction that uh, just happened overnight. Where, where, did you, where did you even find a machine then? Well, that's a good question. I bought one off of uh, the technician who had made Fred Grazer's in his basement, uh, a guy called Gunther Grams. And, and Gunther Grams was a great guy. He ended up with a company called Grams Medical. It may still exist, but he literally had this stainless steel box that uh, he made in his garage for Fred Grazer. And I said, when I was there, can you make one for me too? And he did, and he shipped it. And, and, and an interesting side there, I'll never forget the day I, I took it into the UBC hospital went in there. In those days, no biomedical engineer looked at it. Nobody assessed it. I, I scheduled this operation no one had ever heard of called, called uh, I think I called it suction lipectomy. A patient was admitted overnight and uh, just started sucking this fat. And uh, and it was uh, seemed like a miracle. I mean, the nurses were all coming in to watch this yellow stuff coming out the tube. It was, but uh, again, uh, no, uh, <laughs> no regulations, no authority stepped in. I just started doing it. So, so what, what happened? This got on the news? 
Well, yeah, one of the nurses thought it was so innovative uh, that she knew somebody in the radio station. So uh, about a month later, I was actually on the on a on a big radio station in Vancouver getting interviewed, and then then the floodgates opened. And uh, of course, I would look at my waiting room, and uh, every day I did an office day, there would be at least one person out there who weighed about 300 pounds. And I knew what they were thinking, which of course was not what liposuction was for, but that's, that yeah. was the original thought. So how did it turn out? How did that first case turn out? Did you ever take, did you take post-op pictures? Yeah, good question. Uh, it was a doctor's wife actually. Uh, and uh, she had already had an attempt to remove her saddlebags the old fashioned way, which was a big incision, a 10 inch long incision to try to just cut the fat out and it really didn't work. So I was actually reconstructing a failed aesthetic procedure and it worked great. It, it did solve that problem. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a great story. That's a great story. Um, so what about, what about facelifts? Let's go back to facelifts. So how, yeah. how has the obvious question is how has facelift surgery evolved from back then? I mean, if you kind of look decade by decade, I mean, yeah. well, were, I, you, were gonna, you doing very different things back in the eighties and early nineties? Yeah. I got to take two steps back and say, you know, when you look at the, the field of facial rejuvenation, which is making people look younger, uh, it has changed a quantum leap and, and mostly because of non-surgical techniques, you know, all the injectables, Botox, fillers, uh, uh, energy-based devices to tighten things, energy, energy uh, devices to remove fat, that type of thing has been the big change. The same operations are still around. Uh, when I came out of my residency, there was facelifts, there was blepharoplasty and brow lift, and those are still the three operations that we got in the face uh, it, to make people look younger. But uh, in answer to your question, those three operations have, have obviously evolved. And uh, in the facelift world, which uh, really has been a fascinating thing to be part of, I think that the biggest uh, innovation in my career has been fat grafting. Uh, I wish I'd been the guy to have the light bulb go off in my head, but it was guys like Sid Coleman and, and, uh, and Val Lambros who said, wait a minute here, that the reason the face is sagging is because it's losing volume. Why don't we try adding volume? So fat grafting really changed the, the game in facelift. And uh, that, that's one thing. The second thing uh, is how it's done. I, I remember watching a facelift to my residency and it was uh, a surgeon who made an incision, undermined the skin for about an inch and then pulled the skin as hard as he could without killing it. And so, you know what that did. It, it, it gave the wind tunnel look, the shiny skin, the wide scar. So uh, in my career, the whole uh, facelift world has shifted to deep a deeper surgery, taking the tension on the on the muscle, the smass layer, and letting the skin go along for the ride. And uh, I'm I'm still evolving, still trying to make my face look better because uh, there's still smart guys out there coming up with new ideas, and I love trying these new concepts to see how they work. Yeah, I mean that's you know that that's great to hear. I mean, do you find that you still tinker with your techniques? I mean, that's a great lesson for young surgeons to learn. You bet. I I. I like I said, there's people with good ideas coming up all the time, and I, I want to get better, uh, even at this stage of the game. It, it's kind of what keeps bringing me back. And uh, I'll tell you another little story. I'm part of a WhatsApp group, and the guys on this WhatsApp group are all experienced facelift surgeons all over the world. And they're all obsessive, compulsive uh, uh, plastic surgeons who are keen on making face and neck surgery better. And this group of 
mostly older surgeons, is extremely active, sometimes 40, 50 posts a day from all around the world. Somebody will post a case and say, what about this one? And everybody's got an idea and I'll, I'd try this and I'd try that. Uh, I, I find this kind of thing really stimulating and uh, it just, it's, um, it's, it's probably my hobby, Arjang. That's, that's probably when you come right down to it. What's my hobby? It's uh, plastic surgery. Yeah, what a great, what a great story. Okay, well, what about breast surgery? I know you you do a lot of breast surgery as well, and breast yeah. augmentation has been a big part of your practice. And I mean, that, breast augmentation has really changed a lot over the past four decades. Um, again, when when I think of breast augmentation, the evolution of breast augmentation, the techniques are very much the same. But what what's really changed is the um, is the implants and the technology of the implants, and that to me is kind of the biggest uh, evolution of how things have have changed and changed for the better. Um, would you agree with that? I mean, the, the, the implants really are different than they were even 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Yeah. It's an interesting observation. And I, I, you know, there, it, it's a, it's a two, there's a two side answer to that. If you looked at the breast implants that were invented in the sixties, I think the first one was silicone in 63 and then the saline implant in France came along in 1965. I'm, I'm talking 1963, 1965. That's that, that's you know more than a half a century ago. And if you could hold one of those original implants in your hand and hold a new one today, your average person would say these things look the same. They're plastic bags filled with something, and and really on the surface they they really are. We haven't gone beyond plastic bags filled with something. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot of hope that fat grafting would have worked and maybe stem cells might one day do the trick, but we're still looking at plastic bags. But as you have said, those devices have evolved and, and they've had to evolve because there were some real issues. Uh, in 1992, silicone implants were banned in Canada and we only had saline field implants for, long, for about a decade. And uh, I think that made the uh, companies that make these implants uh, do a, a better job. And uh, I think the, the current silicone implant is probably, it's, well, it's been said, it's one of the most tested devices, medical devices in the history of the world. It's, it's been tested in tens of millions of women. And uh, we sort of know what it can do, we know what it can't do, and we know what this, the problems are. I, I tell my patients that as well. And, and I don't think people recognize how thoroughly tested breast implants have been. Um, and people still think, I mean, I still get patients who somewhat think they're experimental and it's quite the opposite. I mean, these are, as you say, the most tested biomechanical devices that, that's been put in human bodies. Um, but, but, you know, can you talk a little bit, you, you lived through that 90s era when implants were taken off the market and there were some legitimate concerns that people had and, and they were brought back on the market. And now we start to revisit some issues that people are having again. Do you see similarities between some of the, some of the concerns that people have and, uh, and now as opposed to what, what people voiced in the 90s? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Arjang. I, I think there it's a new generation and the new generation that's come along are really saying much the same things that the generation in 1990 was saying which is there are unknowns uh, there is a strange breast implant illness that we can't define uh, people back in the 90s were talking about arthritic symptoms autoimmune symptoms their hair fell out and really what happened was after these studies were done it was not possible to scientifically connect A to B. 
as it is now. Breast implant illness is something that people uh, talk about. And I think if a woman wants her breast implants out, that's her right to get them out if she feels that they're making her sick. But we still can't connect the dots. So I, I do think the concerns are very similar to what they were uh, back in the 90s. And I don't know if we'll go through the same banning process. I doubt it, but uh, uh, the concerns are not much different. Uh, that's being said, uh, the implants that were banned were uh, not the quality that they are now. That They had a leak rate that was high, a rupture rate that was high, and there clearly were problems with liquid gel getting into the breast tissue, causing lumps and that sort of thing. So we're, we, yeah. we're, we're in a better boat than we were then. Yeah. And, and I mean, people, I think, mistakenly um, uh, mistake breast implant illness with the issues with textured implants. And, sure. and clearly that's different. I think that's got to be clear. Now, again, I've told you this before. Textured implants have, have been taken off the market and then the, the, and the kind of in the case of biocell implants have been recalled. And, and that's well, well known and well out there. But um, but I actually never liked the textured implants. I'll be honest with you. And I, I actually really didn't like them. I'll, I'll go so far as to say I, I hated dealing with them and I hated putting them in. I put in, I think I put in two in my practice and it was very early on when they came out and there was a lot of discussion about them. And I, I you know, I thought that they'd be a, a good implant to try. And we discussed that with my patients. But when I actually put them in, I, I really, really strongly disliked them. And I never used them again, just simply because I didn't like them. I was always surprised that people like them, quite frankly. Did, did you use them? Yeah, it's uh, interesting to hear you saying that, Arjane, because I was on exactly the same wavelength. When they came along, I was interested. I listened to all the papers. I listened to, you know, the, the whole idea when a new idea comes along in plastic surgery anyway, there's always the zealot phase or you feel like you're missing the boat if you're not on the train and then it suddenly starts to wane it always wanes and it somehow finds a level uh when the zealot phase was happening i backed off and i used i think uh perhaps two i mean it might have been the same number as you i might have used uh, textured implants in two patients and they weren't shaped they were just round implants in patients where i was doing revision surgery for capsular contracture yeah. and they weren't aggressively yeah, textured either and that's that was my use uh, it just always gave me the creeps putting something in somebody that was supposed to irritate them to such a degree that they'd form a scar so i kind of never got on that that train but i understand the people who did uh, it was uh, the, the logic was there why they they may be better um and it's unfortunate that there were issues uh, certainly the alcl uh thing uh, that came along was not uh, something we could have anticipated and um it, it's uh, it's a it's, it's too bad but anyway i think we did the right thing by by stopping them yeah, I mean, I I wonder about that zealot phase that you refer to, and and this happens, I think, not infrequently, where something new comes out and it's presented, and uh, people are very strongly pro whatever this new device or technology or technique is, uh, almost to the point where you know if you're not for it, you're not even going to get a chance to speak about it at a conference or what whatnot. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a year, a couple of years later, it becomes clear it wasn't really the right direction, and and you kind of feel like, geez, you know, it, it, I don't. There's there's got to be some inherent bias about this kind of the, promoting these new things that that if you're if you're strongly for it, you kind of hear it a lot. <laughs> Um, do you know what I'm trying to say here? I I, I feel like they, they, sometimes we need to temper 
some of these new devices a little bit? You know, in, in medical school, uh, part of the, the deal is to make a person uh, who can think on their own, who can make their own decisions on behalf of their patients and decide what they think is best. And uh, I think that's something that in plastic surgery we have to remember. We have to keep our patients' uh, welfare in mind and uh, be careful about ad adopting anything that, uh, that's, that somebody's promoting without really doing uh, a lot of soul searching about it. You know, I, I got this uh, feeling when I look back on it that there's, uh, there, there's things that people have jumped on, you know, like, like uh, uh, buttock augmentation with, with fat injected, vo huge volumes of fat deep to the buttock. And, you know, that killed people. And we, we've had people going blind with uh, lots of filler injections in the glabella. Yet at the time, that was the state of the art. That was something that somebody would be on a podium telling us that if we weren't doing that, we, were, we, we, we weren't state of the art. So with that kind of history, you have to say, well, maybe this next greatest has to be observed a bit more carefully too. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's something that I've, I've struggled with. And I know kind of anybody who is in the industry struggles with this idea that if you're, if you're not actively doing whatever is the newest thing and being at that cutting edge people kind of you're not getting attention at conferences and so there you know yeah. what is where's the role for the conservative surgeon who's kind of you know just doing what's safe <laughs> and not necessarily getting asked to discuss it all that much you know there there's got to be a, a still a role for that kind of temper your your propensity for jumping into the newest before it before realizing what what really is the best for patients you know, this speaks a little bit uh, to how uh, a young surgeon, for example, and maybe not a young surgeon, uh, any surgeon now, uh, promotes their practice. Uh, it, it used to be that uh, there was no advertising, whether there's no internet, there's just a telephone book. And uh, I used to take, well, I still, I guess, take the attitude that if you do good work, eventually the patients will find you and you don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to do the latest and the greatest because if you just do good work and make happy patients, the, the people will come to see you. But I do think it's different. I, th I think for young surgeons now, they feel it's, it's a competitive environment. Uh, you know, they, they certainly need to be in the, in the social media uh, realm and they have to tell the public that they're right up there with the, the, the latest and the greatest. So it's probably tougher for a younger plastic surgeon now to resist that temptation to jump on the newest thing, because if they don't, the guy across the street will. So I, I, I get it, but I, I still think that the tried and true approach is doing good work, get good training, do good work and produce happy patients. And in the end, those surgeons are, are the ones with the thriving practices and happy people. Yeah, so so that's a segue into social media. That's a great segue into social media. Are you on social media? Uh, no. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That that's. Uh, do you think that's? Is it something that has affected your practice, or have you just said, "Forget it. I'm not doing it." People. I. I mean, obviously, you're pretty established. Yeah, well, it, it sure affected my practice. I mean, my history there is that I didn't have a website till about five or six years ago, and it suddenly <laughs> dawned on me that, that people, people didn't have phone books anymore. So if they didn't have a phone book, how are they even going to find my my address? So that's why I got a website. Uh, but things like you know Facebook and and uh, and other social media things to promote myself, I just never got into it. Uh, as I said, I, I don't have a problem with a young surgeon doing that because I think they probably feel they need to. But uh, 
I didn't do that. And I, I had lots of patients and I, I didn't need any more patients there. They had a waiting list to get in to see me or people were waiting a year to get in the front door. Then why did I want to make them wait two years? So anyway, for me, it was a no brainer. I just didn't need to go there, but uh, it's different for a person starting out. It just is. So you'll have a unique perspective on the whole social media. I mean, I, I you know, I've got my own views about it, but um, I wonder if already my views about it and our views about it are outdated. It takes me back to when the internet was just starting and websites were starting yeah. and there was this big debate about whether there was a role for websites and the internet in medicine yeah. and in plastic surgery. And now you look back and you think, what a ridiculous you know, debate that was. I mean, obviously there was a role. I mean, you can't even, you couldn't exist now without having an online kind of strong online presence. But yeah. and, and patients really use it for evaluating people looking for results and edu and, and I think it's really helped the ed education process of patients because now my patients, I mean, I'm sure yours are the same. My patients come in almost as educated as like a junior resident. I mean, they know yeah. the procedures. They sometimes they even know the, the, the newest cutting edge procedures better than, <laughs> better than some surgeons do really, to be quite honest. So it, it, it really, you know, that I take it back to when, when the internet was starting and people's views. But now I wonder about how social media has played, particularly over the last two years. And I think it comes to me a little bit, it, it amplifies this question of how much of our specialty should be treated like a discipline of medicine and how much of it is, is really like a retail industry because those, those industries behave very differently uh, on social media distinctly. And the regulations for those industries are very different and don't necessarily seem to um, come together in a very smooth way. You know, Arjang, that you're describing these two Venn diagrams, which uh, is the commercial side of aesthetics and uh, it, and the medical side. And somewhere in the middle, these things overlap. And I think it requires a, a delicate touch uh, to, as a doctor to uh, maintain the position of somebody who, as I said earlier, is advocating for our patients, who's doing the right thing for the patient. So. Uh, is is the right thing for the patient to do something that has uh, low risk, uh, perhaps, but that uh, brings in a lot of money for a practice? Is if, is the money the reason that it's being done? Uh, if that's the case, I think we have to consider, well, what about that low risk? Should there be any risk at all? Uh, certainly, the patients have to be informed on this. And uh, uh, I have a feeling that if we go into surgery and we train as a surgeon, but we end up in a field where we don't do surgery anymore, it's uh, we have a medical spa and we, we I don't have a problem with medical spas and injectables and fillers, but if that's all you do, then maybe you shouldn't have trained for five years to be a surgeon. <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, you could also make the argument, maybe it makes you a better injector knowing that side of it, right? I mean, I think you, you're you're dead right. But again, if that's what we need, if that's what we want to do, if we want to train people to do that work, uh, why should we make them do a residency for five years just so they know where to put the needle and find the corrugator? That there's got to be a better way. Yeah, I mean, I, I see your point. I don't know how to bring those two worlds together, however, because I think there still is a real role for the plastic surgeon who's got solid training to bring that to the non non-surgical world um 
I, you know, I, I, I'll bring you back to this social media question because it's something that I think about a lot and kind of try to grapple with. And I don't know if there's really any answers, but even something like we, you know, in Ontario, we've, we're going through this, these new regulations on social media and what's appropriate for mm -hmm. social media advertising. And, and, um, I get it. In, in some respect, the regulations are meant to cover all of medicine. So, you know, the regulations for a plastic surgeon, I think, are meant to be similar to, you know, a cardiologist who's also kind of dealing with drugs and prescribing patterns and whatnot. But it, it is very different. It is very different in plastic surgery because there is, there, there is a kind of this component where patients are purchasing products and they have to like what they are getting. And, and there are very distinct services that patients may like for various reasons. The other part of it is that, is that it's, it's so global now, really. Um, it, it's almost ridiculous to me to think of having regional regulations for social media or kind of even the way you kind of put yourself out for rules about social media that are not global in nature because when our patients follow somebody they're following you know somebody from brazil and somebody from los angeles and somebody from vancouver and then somebody from toronto they're not just following everybody in ontario <laughs> you know you know what i'm trying to say here it's it's almost I, I wonder um, if it's not global, what is the point <laughs> almost? But then, but then, you know, there has to be some rules because it can't be, you have to protect patients in a sense, but um, I'm not even sure if there's a question in there. I guess the question is um, how, 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 how much credit do we have to give to patients to be their own kind of savvy deciders of information on social media versus creating rules externally? Right. Well, uh, a couple of comments. Uh, you know, the, the first is when you mentioned cardiology or any other part of medicine, I, I agree that there, there's private sides to all these things. But the difference with plastic surgery and aesthetic surgery is that what we do is completely unnecessary. I mean, these other guys are doing something that at least have a medical component to it. Uh, a, a facelift or a breast augmentation arguably is an unnecessary thing. So I, I think the bar is different uh, in, in terms of, of how, how far uh, we should uh, be, have that bar before we uh, force people to, or, or try to persuade somebody to do something that they don't really need. But uh, I kind of agree with that concept, Arjang, that the, the social media is a worldwide phenomenon. And the only logic I can see for having local rules would be if the College of Physicians and Surgeons in your province or in, or in the United States and the medical board in that state uh, decides they want to regulate the ethics and behavior of doctors, then I suppose uh, it would be reasonable to regulate what they do with social media. But from the public's point of view, it's irrelevant. They log on and they don't know where that uh, person is. But uh, I, I can see from the regulator's point of view what they're trying to do. They're, they're, they're trying to make me in, in British Columbia toe the line according to their uh, their rules for all doctors. And I guess that, that's their job. Yeah. Um, you, you told me a story about a patient who brought in a selfie. And I, I was <laughs> I kind of was laughing thinking about this. And I, I suspect what they were doing. So this patient just to kind of tell everybody, you're, you're telling me that patients bring in selfies of themselves, and I presume they're, they've got filters. So they're altering their face with a filter and asking you to make them look like whatever it is the filtered selfie is. Is that right? 
Yeah, well, I, I call it the selfie generation because there's a generation of people who have taken pictures of, of themselves using a cell phone, which has got a wide angle lens. It, it distorts your face already and they hold it as far as their arm can reach, which again distorts your face, makes your nose look big and all that stuff. And uh, that there, there's two phenomena there. There's the person who comes in with a selfie, especially I find this with nose patients. And uh, they say, well, here is the problem. Uh, it's it's and they, they show me on their cell phone. They're, they're going like this. And, and I say, well, wait a minute here. Why don't we look at the, the real person? You, you're, you're here. There's your nose. Uh, it doesn't look like that when I look at it in real uh, life. And they say, but really, I don't care about that. I, I care about these pictures. And so I think there's been a bit of a move towards trying to, uh, for the public anyway, to look good in a selfie, to look good on their cell phone pictures, when in fact that uh, it might be a different objective than making them look good in real life. Uh, in fact, I heard a guy at a conference a while ago say that, you know, there's these standard medical photography we do from, you know, position of the face this way, this way, and this way. And maybe what we should do is add selfies to the list of standard medical photography so we could compare pre-op selfies and post-op selfies and yeah. interesting failed but but you get them coming in with filters so you know they, they there's you filters do, yeah. for everything and there's facial optimization filters where you can actually look like you've already had surgery with a with a selfie yeah large angle I'll, I'll i'll tell you about a, a facelift patient who shall obviously go nameless here but uh, she had um filtered uh, and, and, and morphed her face to, to look quite different and had pictures of celebrities. And she was uh, looking at having a facelift. This woman was having a facelift. And I had her bring in old photos. I like to see the way they used to look in their 20s and 30s, because to me, that's the objective. And we were looking at that picture where she's, and she said to me was, well, that's all very good, but I don't want to look like that. I want to look like this. So in <laughs> fact, just going back to the way she was, was not what she was interested in. She wanted to look really quite different yeah i know and i i've had that experience too where they get these optimization filters and they want you to make them look like this and you're like really that's a cgi graphic essentially <laughs> <laughs> but what okay what, what about trends so you know back to this idea that you know plastic surgery is unique you know we i don't i don't know if people talk about trends in other areas of medicine like we constantly talk about trends in plastic surgery almost on a yearly um yearly basis but and maybe that speaks to the fact that there's not really universal standards of beauty and and these things change and they change based on so many external factors but um, what do you think are the trends that you've noticed uh, over the past couple of years that have really come to the forefront? Well, some things are obvious. I guess the most obvious one is something that we mentioned at the start of this talk, which was uh, the, the non-surgical uh, world, uh, the, the energy-based devices, the injectables, the fillers, all that kind of thing. That has grown exponentially to an industry that's apparently $12 billion in the world and is expected to double in the next five years. Uh, surgery is not growing like that. Uh, I, uh, as a trend, I see the non-surgical world growing and growing and growing because there is a lot of uh, effort and, and frankly, research money uh, from corporations in the non-surgical world. And I suspect there are gonna be further and further advances. Now, what kind of advances? Maybe we will get to the point where uh, fat removal will be a, a non-surgical thing completely. Maybe we'll get to the point where uh, deep tissue tightening in the face will do the job that a facelift does. Uh, maybe we'll get to a point where it'll be something better than artificial filler for 
say, a breast. Maybe we could inject a breast with something that would be safe and wouldn't require surgery. So uh, what, would, uh, would surgery change with all that? Well, yes, yeah, certainly would, but I really don't think surgery is gonna disappear because uh, as long uh, as we have human beings wanting to look a certain way, there will be things that the non-surgical world can't deliver. And as long as we keep aging, there are gonna be things that uh, I think surgeons will be able to do that others won't. But uh, going back to what I said earlier, if you take the face, really, we haven't invented many new operations. You know, we still do blepharoplasties there. We could tweak them, uh, facelifts, we can tweak that. Brow lifts change, you know, our objectives with brow lifts have changed. And uh, the internationalization of surgery has changed because uh, as the world becomes, uh, I'd, say, I'd say a mixture, a racial mixture really of, of people across all, all races and all cultures, what beauty of the face is and of the body has changed. And we're, we're looking at different things, trying to achieve, achieve different objectives. I think that trend's gonna keep growing. And so the, the, the Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, Northern European uh, beauty objective is gonna fade and we're gonna be into more of an international look that uh, people are gonna wanna achieve. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. I, I I think the the role of ethnicity in aesthetics is a is a key one. That in some ways, I I think there's probably still a lot more to explore. Um, you know, what are what are the beauty standards in different ethnicities and different regions of the world? And we had somebody on a while back, one of our previous podcasts um, from a, a filler company, who was talking about this because their markets are global, and yeah. their trends they see these trends globally and. and do you see that in facelift surgery where there is a markedly different uh, standard in different um, cultural groups? Uh, yeah, to some degree, although facelifting uh, um, and, and in general uh, surgery to make people look like they used to, pretty universal. You know, the, the, we have a lot of Asian people in Vancouver and those Asian patients who come in with pictures of themselves from their 25 years old, that's really what they want to look like. The the white person who comes in holds up the same picture and says, "This is what they want to go back in time." They don't. The, the Chinese person doesn't want to look white, and the white person doesn't want to look Chinese. So yeah. I, I, that's a that's a that's something that's universal. But you take body surgery and nose surgery, for example. Those are fundamental body changes, and uh, you know the the Latino uh, Brazilian buttock look. That's something that. 20 years ago, uh, Caucasian people, or Asian uh, people, it wasn't in their mind at all. So that, that's, that's an example of something that over a fairly short period of time, 20 years, it becomes something of, an, uh, of, a, of a cultural ideal that all cultures are looking for uh, that was not the case. So I, I think internationalization is going to change things like that. But simply looking younger, boy, I, I don't think that, that, that cuts across all, all cultures, all nationalities. Yeah. Okay, Rick, let's take a detour here. I know, um, I know, um, taking care of your physical body is important to you. So how, how do you go about maintaining yourself physically as a surgeon as you start to get older? Uh, you've done a great job, but surgery is so physical. I, I tell this to my junior colleagues and my residents all the time that 
it's such a physical i think it's 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 underappreciated how physical it is and i think there's a disproportionate number of surgeons who late in their career have problems with their spine and their necks and and end up getting operations like neck fusion surgeries and so you've done a great job what what are what are the things that are important to you to maintain your body well, I, I certainly agree with you. I, I think when we go into the operating room, it, it's a, a physical event. It's it's an athletic event to some degree, and uh, you're you're it. You're you're there. You have to perform. It's like playing playing tennis. It's just you. There's no. There's a, certainly a team around you, but you're you're the one doing the work. So uh, I think uh, for me anyway, I I suppose I I don't I can't speak for the rest of the surgical community, but I I I've, I, <clears throat> I've always been a bit of an exerciser. I was a runner in my twenties, and I was a, I was a bit of a gym rat, and I just noticed when I got to be around fifty, I needed to do more of that. If I if I let it slide. Uh, I just didn't feel so good. And so as I've gotten older, here's here's my my theory from an absolute amateur on this. I think the older you get, the the less calories you need and the more exercise you need. And so at my age, I do a lot of exercise. I exercise every single morning. Uh, I alternate running with uh, working out in a gym. I don't run as far as I used to and probably, I definitely don't run as fast as I used to, but I'm out there. And uh, in the gym, same sort of a thing. My weights aren't as big as they used to be, but at least I'm doing something. So uh, it, it's uh, it's a personal thing. It, it wakes me up in the morning. I, I come to the operating room refreshed. I'm good to go. Uh, and I've just found if I don't do that kind of thing, uh, I don't feel so good. Uh, certainly at the end of the day, I don't feel so good. So uh, it's uh, something that's worked for me and uh, still really enjoy that. What about your diet? Have you done anything with your diet? Yeah, I, I, again, a, a bit of a health nut. I got to confess, uh, you know, trying to do all the right things. Uh, I'm into longevity. I've read about it. I know that the skinny rats live longer than the fat rats. So uh, I'm fa I'm fairly lean. I, I eat the kind of diet they tell you to eat, you know, fruits and vegetables, uh, not much red meat and uh, you know, watch my cholesterol and watch my blood pressure. All I take my blood pressure myself every day. Uh, again, you got to remember, I'm an obsessive compulsive cosmetic <laughs> surgeon. And so this spills over into everything else I do, including trying to stay alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Okay, well, what about what about mentally or spiritually? whatnot? do you do anything? Do you meditate? Do you like do you do? Does your daily routine include anything that lets you calm down or wind down mentally? That's a good question. Uh, the um, I, I learned how to meditate from a patient actually uh, about ten years ago, and I was having trouble sleeping. And uh, this patient uh, told me how to meditate, and uh, I went home and, and did it. And so, if ever I'm feeling a little cranked up, which is probably a couple of times a week, I go into a dark room and I, I meditate, and uh, it it helps me, you know. And uh, it, it was it was a simple instruction from this patient i thought i'll never be able to do that but uh, anyway I, I followed her advice and it. it's it's work but i don't do it all the time just do it when i feel like i need it yeah yeah i i, I agree with you i i found particularly over the past few years that i've i've had some issues and i've kind of changed the things i do and kind of been pretty strict with my eating habits and and it, and, and really kind of the meditation has been a big part of my life as well and i I think that's helped me be a surgeon, actually. <laughs> I saw there's an article, and I think it was last month's PRS, about yoga in the OR. And it yeah. got me thinking about it. That is, you know, again, it's probably one of these things that we don't appreciate how physical and um, how physical surgery is and how we need to look at some of these uh, techniques to lengthen our lives. <laughs> 
You know, I, I did a little study on myself. I, I share it with you, and that was I uh, was interested in my blood pressure, and I was checking my blood pressure, like around around the clock, very carefully. I, I'd check it after I woke up, and after I had breakfast, and after a shower, and uh, in in the OR, I, I, I if I scrubbed out for after a, you know a five hour case, I might go to the bathroom after two and a half hours. I checked my blood pressure, and here's what I found: I found that my blood pressure peaked just before surgery. Like when I was, I, I'd mark the patient, the patient's going to sleep, I'm cranked up, uh, my blood pressure was at its highest. And then as soon as the surgery got going, it just trailed off. And I, I am relaxed in the OR, as it turns out. I feel good in there and, and my, my blood pressure reflects that. I don't you know, know if that, any- Well, that, you know, to your point about surgery being like a high performance athletic event, that's a common trait in high performing athletes that when they get into a stressful, and this is well-documented, that when somebody like a Tiger Woods or you know, they think, how do these guys perform so great? When they get into a high-stress environment, they do tend to calm down, and calming down allows them to perform at an extremely high level. So that's, I think that's a, that's a very astute point you're bringing up. You know, I, well, I agree with what you said. I, I think that when, when the excrement hits the fan, that you, you need to be able to... Uh, turn the dial down and slow your heart rate and, and, and really just chill. And so when I'm in the operating room, that's the way I feel. I, I, I've, I dial it down. I know it's, a, it's an important event in somebody's life and I'm there to make it work. But uh, if, I, if you're cranked up uh, emotionally and physically, I think it, it puts you off your game. So yeah, that's a good point. Maybe you're meditating while you're doing it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure there's an element of that. Um, Rick, you, you've had leadership positions nationally your whole career, particularly the past number of years. Um, I, I have, I, I'm not going to ask you about them. I mean, for those who don't know, Rick really has been a, a leader in the Canadian plastic surgery world and has done really amazing things that we're not going to have time to discuss. But um, I, I don't see a lot of young, um, young kind of surgeons and trainees that want to get into these kinds of positions anymore. And I, I don't know if it's just me noticing that, um, but I do tend to feel that there's been a change or a shift, particularly the past 10 years with people who perhaps maybe 10 years ago, there, there were more people that wanted to be in uh, these leadership roles. And now it's almost shifted to the opposite where people are deciding not to actively not wanting to do that. Do you see that? Is that just me or do you do you notice that? And, and if so, t- does it worry you? Yeah, I, I I completely agree with what you just said. Uh, and uh, looking back on it and you know, taking the big view, for most medical organizations that, you know, you're talking about the Canadian Society of this or the American Society of that or the Royal College, these organizations are basically running on volunteer labor. And so what does it take to become a leader? It, 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 it's really being available. That's the number one thing. If you stick your head up a little bit, all of a sudden, we'll put you on this committee, we'll, we'll make you the head of that. And so it's not difficult to become a leader, you just have to be willing to do it. So it wasn't any brilliance on my part that I ended up there, just there I was saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, but I think there's been a generational change. Uh, you know, honestly, without pointing fingers at the millennials, the generation X's, we know that they value private time more than uh, the baby boomers did. Uh, my generation was more willing to supplant uh, our private life, uh, maybe to the detriment of our family sometimes, uh, 
for work and maybe in this case uh, volunteering to uh, work for these organizations so I, I think the evidence is there that the generation that's come along that you're talking about is less willing to donate time uh, they are saying well, wait a minute here I, I, that's my private time and I'm, I'm not going to donate it uh, I, I might do it if you pay me but I'm not going to do it for nothing so uh, it's a, a generational switch is it bad it's just the way it is I, I think it's a it's a, a different look at it and uh, I do worry though because some of these organizations are important and uh, you do need people to step up uh, and 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 run with it but uh, uh, that means perhaps some people who are doing it might be less qualified in the future I don't know it's a it, it's a potential but uh, it's a bottom line I think it's a generational change yeah okay I've got some quick hits to finish sure. off some quick okay. quick questions what's your favorite music in the or uh probably uh, uh john fogarty uh maybe uh, uh jj kale <laughs> okay um i've got down here because i love pearl jam you, you got a favorite pearl, pearl jam song don't do pearl jam oh okay <laughs> <laughs> um you growing a mustache for november I've I've never had a mustache. I, I've seen the start of one, and I I think it's it's pathetic. So I've never run down that road. <laughs> I'm um, blonde. You see, that's a, that's part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a skincare routine or a skin service that you like personally? On my own face. Yeah, on your own face. Soap and water. That's it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I I love getting facials. It's my 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 little thing, and I my I think my esthetician runs the opposite way whenever I come into the clinic because she knows <laughs> I'm gonna track her down and ask her if she's got time for a facial. <laughs> you know, I should take a leaf out of your book because I have a, a very busy esthetician in my practice, and I have never had a facial in my life oh. from anybody. And she keeps saying, "Come on in here," and I I'm just I'm afraid. I just never did it. Oh God, Rick! You need to do this. I, I, I'm, I'm so hooked on facials. It's the thing I, I love doing this at the end of a clinic day. I, I, I grab her and pull her in a room and say, like, let's, let's do a facial. It's, that's, that, that's what I, I just love doing. That it's, it's like meditation for my face. Yeah. <laughs> um. So today is the American election. We're going to be. Um, this isn't live, obviously, and so people won't know that we actually taped this. But and I, I don't want to get into partisan politics, but. Uh, but I do want to ask you, is there is there an issue that is most concerning to you in the world? Like, what is the one issue that is, that means the most to you? You're talking worldwide, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, gosh, um, I suppose it's um, peace. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate the violence. I, I You know, this week, uh, the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis are, are having a a small war and I, that it, it somehow bugs me. I don't like people fighting. I don't like uh, uh, that type of thing. And I worry about it becoming international. I mean, that we were sitting on nuclear weapons that could kill us all. Um, the current president of the United States, if he pulls the trigger, uh, it, it, it could finish us. So uh, that that's always been a bit of a worry. Of course, I grew up in the 50s when there were bomb shelters and they were teaching us in elementary school how to climb under the desks, and that's never left my mind. I'm also worried about climate change. I'm worried about uh, social injustice and so on. But if you ask me the one thing I'm worried about, it's somebody starting a major war. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly, let's, let's pray for that one. I purposefully not asked you anything about COVID. Um, I feel like enough's been said. <laughs> that's just my take on it. But to finish off, what's in store for you for the next six months? Do you got, um, tell us what's kind of the, the exciting yeah, thing so, you're looking forward to in your life. Well, I'll tell you one side story about this that, you know, in, in British Columbia here, we had a, a lockdown of medical facilities. I, I work in a private uh, surgical facility that I built and own, and uh, it was shut for two and a half months, just boom, overnight we were closed. And um, this gave me a taste of retirement because for two and a half months, I didn't go to the clinic anymore. And so uh, it was an interesting experience. And uh, I liked it for the first couple of weeks. And then I started getting restless and I, I was pretty good shape. I was running more and, and going to the gym more, but I missed work. I really missed coming in and seeing my friends and working uh, with uh, my colleagues and doing the surgery that I like to do. So uh, what's in the future for me is to keep doing surgery as long as I'm good at it and as long as I'm liking it, uh, there's going to be no travel in the next six months. I, I really don't think there's going to be a vaccine that, that uh, will be dependable in that amount of time. So I think most of us are going to be hunkered down. We're going to be home. We're going to be with our families and our friends. And in my case, I'm going to uh, keep doing plastic surgery. Um, my days are a bit shorter these days, uh, which is fine, but uh, I still like the work. Yeah, well, that's, that's great news. I, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much, Rick. This has been a lot of fun and yeah. um, I hope we can do it again. This was fantastic. Thanks very much for having me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation, Arjang. Yeah, Have a good it's day. My, my pleasure. You too. Bye. Yeah. Bye bye.